0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Lassie Skürt, author of Orbanland, Why Viktor Orban's Hungary Matters, republished and updated in March by New Europe Books. The timing of this new edition is spot on. Hungarians are heading to the polls on April the 3rd, while war is raging on the northeastern border. And I should add, we're recording this in the week before the election. Since he returned to power in 2010, Viktor Orban has established a new style of government that isn't easy to capture with standard political vocabulary. In previous podcasts, the regime has been characterized as plebiscitary leader democracy, authoritarian capitalism, and illiberal constitutionalism. But whatever its precise badge, Orbanism has attracted a global fan base on the right, starting with Donald Trump, who has called on Hungarians to give Orban a fourth term in April, and Fox News controversialist Tucker Carlson. Lassie Skert is a Danish journalist who's been living in Hungary since 2013 and seen Orbanism entrench and develop into a high-value political export. It would appear sensible, he says in the introduction to the book, to make some attempt at predicting the future of Europe and the US by casting a spotlight on Viktor Orban's Hungary through understanding what's going on in Hungary and why, perhaps we will be able to predict how the current polarization might shape the future of both sides on the Atlantic. Well, uh, let's have a go, Lassie, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, as you as you spell out at the, at the beginning of the book, you're, you're, a, you're a Dane living in provincial Hungary, and you say that you, quote, liked the idea of going east when everyone else was headed west. Uh, can you tell us more about why you made this choice?
1: Yes, so back back in, in two thousand. 12, 2013, I, I was a uh, um, new journalist and I wanted to to go abroad and try to, to cover new ground. And already at the time, Hungary was an interesting country um, going into bigger European debates. But at that time, a lot of it was focused on, on Jopik, this um, radical right-wing party at the time. Um, but all, of course, Orbán was already at power, and um, I wanted to understand this country um, why why it kind of developed into into the focus of of not only Hungarians and Central Europeans, but but into a kind of a European um, example of some of the other trends that we would come to see later on. Um, and then when, when I arrived shortly after, Viktor Orban had this very famous speech in which, which he used the phrase illiberal democracy, um, and not to neglect uh, some of the theoretical analysis that uh, you just mentioned of Orbanism, but I wanted to kind of get it under the skin of the Hungarian society and try to understand the average person, like why the re- the reasons for for voting uh, for a man like Viktor Orbán, not only one time but but several times in a row, um, and I I came with a with an open mind, so I wanted to understand and learn instead of instead of judging and, and bashing, as I've noticed many Western journalists do when they when they come to Hungary. Um, so my keyword was and and it still is curiosity and. I was not afraid to spend hours listening to government people or average Hungarians speak about their views so that was my um that was my approach
0: and and you yeah you, I guess that's the reason you chose to live in uh, Debrecen rather than rather than Budapest what 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 made you choose that uh, city well that's
1: actually kind of a a, a chance because my wife <laughs> which was my girlfriend at the time. She wanted to become a doctor and and she came with me from, from Copenhagen and in Debrecen, there's a very acknowledged uh, medical school. So that was kind of the, the reason why we, we chose to have our base there. And I'm very, very, very happy that it was because um, obviously I spent a lot of time in Budapest, the capital, but... The difference between Budapest and Debrecen is so vast that um, it made me, I mean, I tell myself that I got a kind of a broader understanding of the country than if I had just spent my time in Budapest.
0: Yeah. Well, I I guess you started writing the first version of this book in, I don't know, 2017, 2018 after... Maybe five years there. Did you have a commission to do this, or was it was it just something that popped into your head? And, and was it all always for an Anglophone audience, or did you did you write first in, in Danish?
1: Well, so again, I can mention my wife. She's now graduated as a doctor. Um, she was she was getting closer to that uh, degree uh, in those years, and I. I kind of like I wanted something uh, physical to take with me from uh, from our time in Hungary, and that kind of turned into this book. And the reason for writing it in in English was obviously for a broader audience. Um, even though there's a big big interest in Hungary um, in my in my home country of Denmark, but I wanted to. Well, basically, the the book came out first in ahead of the um, European elections in 2019 and uh, got quite a bit of attention back then because it was written in English and because of the huge interest that was already there established uh, towards Viktor Orban and his, and his uh, government.
0: Mm. I, I did wonder, because, I mean, after after Trump won in 2016, there were this spate of books of... Uh, how did this happen? Who, who are the people who voted for him? A sort of sociology of, of Trumpist America. Were, were you inspired by any of that kind of um, uh, sort of sociological approach uh, at the time?
1: Well, a little bit because, uh, like I mentioned before, I thought a lot of the um, a lot of the Western coverage of of Hungary, and that also goes for for some of the American. Um, the trump uh, coverage was kind of um i would not hesitate to say biased and i i wanted to do something else because i i think in journalism the most important uh, role is to to try to understand and communicate the facts and the reality of a country and not only some pre um prefabricated uh, thoughts so uh, this sou- sounds very idealistic but I, I wanted to um, to get people from from one side of the aisle to to kind of understand the other one and it goes both ways uh, better um, so that was my approach and you could say it's kind of a soci- sociological uh, approach um, that's also what I do in the book. The the third part of the book is some consisting of some interviews that I call conversations with different uh, people from Hungary and related to Hungary. Um, eight of them, it's sixteen interviews, and eight of them are pro Orbán people who are trying to explain their views, and the other eight are kind of very critical against Orbán. So if you read all of them, you'll try to well, you hopefully get kind of a broad understanding of what um, what people think of Hungary and Viktor Orban and also, in a, in a larger sense, why this country is, is polarised.
0: Actually, I mean, what struck me uh, among the eight opposition figures was how desperate they are which which kind of explains why this was such a miracle that they put this sort of uh, united opposition together um can, can i ask you about um yeah i mean you were on a tour in the u.s uh, last week uh, promoting the the new book um I'm really curious about the, both about the tour and and the new edition. Was this already being planned by you and the publisher before the interest shown by Tucker Colson, um, or, or was was Tuck, Tucker Colson a sort of catalyst to this? And could you take us through the part of the part of the book where you describe Colson's uh, trip to to Hungary?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, the first plan was actually to to release a book in. Well, around the time of the American election in 2020, but yeah. because of the pandemic, uh, we had to reschedule that. So the new the new kind of plan was to to release it ahead of the Hungarian elections, which are coming up very soon. And the the story about Tucker Carlson was that he came to Hungary in in August 2021, and he met with Viktor Orbán, and he also had a speech at this large event in Estagom in the northern part of the country. So I went there and I followed him around and I write about that in the book. And it's another example of trying to understand what brings a personality like Tucker Carlson, who is who is known for his controversies in, in the States, what brings him here to a small a nation of 10 million people, um, of course, there's there's um, there's an interest from the Hungarian government also to to have this attention from not only Donald Trump but also from his fan base because uh, there there are many uh, similarities between between the the Orban voter and the Trump voter but there are also very many differences. So that reportage that I write about Tucker Carlson is trying to to sum up all of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's get into the substance of the book. Uh, And I'll start by admitting that there were a couple of times when I was reading um, the chapter on Hungarian film or uh, the the section on Katalin Kariko, I I wondered if we were going off topic a bit. But then I looked at the top of the page, and, of course, this book is about Orbán Land, not not really just about Viktor Orbán. And... You get yeah, you get that across. This idea of of how someone has permeated a whole culture, or a culture has permeated him. And there's this really good quote at the you quote uh, Paul Lenvay as saying um, that the the history of the Hungarians is one of quote the loneliness of a people with a language unique across the Carpathian Basin and this long history of catastrophes going back to the Mongol invasion. Can you take us through the background to how you, how you think this sort of culture of victimhood and loneliness among Hungarians has developed?
1: Yes, of course. I mean, when I first came to Hungary, it was, it was kind of a shock to me to hear whenever I talk to people that uh, the trauma of history... Uh, Took up such a big part of their uh, mind. Um, yeah. Of course, history is, is important in all countries, but here I experienced that it was the key to understand the the present, um, even more so than in in other countries that I spent time in. So I wanted to to kind of get under the skin of the Hungarian history um, because mm-hmm. it it's it comes up every time you you speak to to a hungarian that they've always been on the losing sides of, of different historical events world wars and so on and uh, what what brings them uh, what brings them to 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 go such a radical way as some people would say that uh, the orban government is is on um, so i try to to connect the the present uh, understanding of a Hungarian mind with, with, with the Mm. past and, and there are many different uh, examples in the book of why, uh, why Hungarians think like they do today. Um, Mm. but I also wanted to, well, I wanted to underline that because it's a, a book about Hungary, but also of course the book is about a broader, uh, topic, which is, you know, the understanding of, a polarized country so what are what are the what are the keys to to well what 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 are unique for for Hungarian um perspective on this and what are kind of the more broader historical understandings mm. of of why a country becomes uh, divided
0: well, yeah, we, we'll come to the broader issues yeah. in a second, but the, the the very specific ones, the one that really jumped out to me, and again, I I either didn't know this or I'd forgotten it, but the the deep trauma of the uh, Trianon Treaty yeah. of nineteen twenty, which which seems to be deeper and more pervasive than than the trauma of nineteen fifty six. Could, yeah, can you take us through that? You know, what what was the Trianon Treaty, and and why is it still so deeply ingrained in in the Hungarian psyche?
1: Well, so after First World War, uh, Hungary was on the losing side and and was punished with this uh, Treaty of Trianon, um, and and the punishment was uh, to give away two thirds of the, its territories to uh, to the surrounding countries, uh, which yeah. also meant that around a third of the Hungarian uh, population suddenly lived on the, you could say, wrong side of the border, and still today there are huge uh, minorities of ethnic ethnic Hungarians who are living in Romania, in Serbia, in Ukraine, and and some of the other neighboring countries. Um, what what brings it up for to today, for example, that Viktor Orbán has tried to um, to include these people more in the Hungarian society of the today, uh, for example, by giving them uh, Hungarian citizenship and, and mm. making them able to vote in the elections. Um, the, the fact that uh country has been cut off by its with, well, from other areas that belong to it in previous times, Um, that's also something that has happened in, in the history of Denmark, but on a much larger, sorry, on a much smaller scale. Um, Mm. but here a hundred years after it happened in 1920, it's still, it's so present. So, uh, I write one chapter about, uh, for example, the, the eternal rivalry between Romania and Hungary, um, and that's that's an example of um, how it could be to to live on the wrong side of the border, but also if you if you take it too far, how what are the dangerous consequences of of um, of holding so f- firmly uh, still to the past? So it's yeah. a very interesting chapter, I think, where. I, I learned a lot from it at
0: least. Yeah, and is it um, that the, the treat or the historical treatment of the um, Hungarian minority in Ukraine is that do you think that's one of the reasons there's perhaps less sympathy for Ukraine at least on the Hungarian rights or, or, or is that something more recent?
1: No, that's definitely um, a factor uh, in, the, in the past mm. few years. Especially, there's been a diplomatic crisis between Hungary and Ukraine. Um, we've heard it with uh, the Russians uh, in Ukraine that they are not, uh, well, they're not allowed to be taught in schools in their in their own language, and this also goes for Hungarians. Um, mm. This, of course, is something that the Orbán government is not happy with. That the ethnic Hungarians in in Ukraine cannot be taught uh, Hungarian in school. So um, for for several years, ahead, I mean, before the war, there has been um, very cold air between uh, Zelensky and and Orbán, um, and as we've seen after the war broke mm. out, um, this. Uh, diplomatic crisis have has uh, grown to new levels i would say
0: and uh, i mean you live there now as as we discussed are you are you sensing that there is the beginnings of of uh, of a movement in sympathy of of ukraine and against russia or is it is it is it less so in hungary than elsewhere Well,
1: i would i not, not hesitate to say that it's less so than in other countries. Um, but of course, mm. again, Hungary is so divided that you'll have uh, the opposition yeah. voters who are very much on the European-Ukrainian side, whereas um, Viktor Orban in, for years has been very closely allied with Vladimir Putin um, and a lot of his voters are more, um, what do you say, open to to Putin's politics than, uh, than in other European countries. But I yeah. think Orbán has ex- experienced after the war broke out that uh, his voter base is a little bit divided. And so he's been trying to communicate kind of, of course, Supporting the sanctions, um, supporting Ukraine, condemning war, but mm. still talking to the to the part of the Fidesz voters who are uh, pro Putin, and saying that well, we uh, we have to know there are two sides in this uh, conflict, and and try to to mobilize you know another narrative as well because with only a few weeks to the election when the war broke out he he could not risk losing um a big chunk of his voter base so obviously he's been he's been trying to kind of <laughs> go with the flow uh, in the in the last few weeks um mm-hmm. because it's of course a conflict and a war that consists of a lot of Uncertainty, um, and I think for the first time we've seen Orbán uh, not be ahead of the story, but kind of had to to react more than uh, act. So we'll see at the election how much it has affected the uh, the voter base mm. of Fidesz.
0: And it does it does seem to have undermined his his long term European strategy too. That you know he was able to rely on this uh, national conservative alliance with Kaczynski in Poland and the Poles have now gone very much in the other direction uh, and he, he seems or Hungary seems a lot more isolated uh, from now on. Do you, do you, do you th- is, is that a fair characterization do you think?
1: Yeah I think that that's uh, that's a big development because of course Poland has been the closest ally in the European Union with Hungary Um they have been kind of supporting each other against the, the attempts from the European Union to, to punish them for the lack mm-hmm. of rule of law and so on. Um, and now we're seeing this, this split in the views. Well, this has been there all the time, the different views on Russia. Poland has for a long time been very much anti-Russian, whereas Hungary has been more, more pro uh, Putin. So, but now, of course, it comes up to the surface, and and just it's it's hard to imagine that you know if if the war ends within let's say a few months, that Hungary and Poland would just go back to how it was before. Um, mm. So, yes, Viktor Orbán stands very much isolated on the European stage. Um, before the war, he's lost different allies uh, who, who used to be leaders, Donald Trump included, but also in the Czech Republic, in, of course, Netanyahu in Israel, and there's been other leaders mm. who, who are not there anymore um, and who used to, to kind of have the, have the same mindset as, as Viktor Orban. So even though I expect Thank him to, to win the election, I, I think... Going forward, he can have uh, some hard times ahead of him trying to to navigate in the same way he's done so far.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we discussed some of the specific issues to Hungary, but as as you said, um, the, early on in the book, you discuss the the commonalities with the with the rebellion against uh, uh, against uh, liberalism. Uh, and you talk about the, the the four waves that demolished the the House of cards was demolished in four rounds uh, and the discussion about anywheres and somewheres. Um, where do you think um, where do you think the commonalities uh, apply and where do you think they diverge between Hungary and say uh, brexit um, and and the rise of trumpism?
1: Well the first word i would use is uh, disappointment because a lot of the explanation to to why people vote for Viktor Orbán uh, is due to a big disappointment uh, towards the west so Hungary mm-hmm. became a part of the of western europe in in 1989 and had very high hopes in the 90s that it would integ- integrate very quickly into, into the Western world. And it did so. It went so fast that uh, basically only a few people in Hungary benefited from all this uh, market capitalism that, that swept over Hungary in, in the 90s. And mm. that caused a lot of disappointment in the, in the broader society. And then after that, You had the uh, membership of the European Union in 2004. Again, high hopes that now finally Hungary would be um, kind of uh, getting up to a a European level in in terms of economy and social um, development and so on. But a Mm. couple of years after the... The membership in 2006 there was a big uh, scandal with the socialist prime prime minister at the time who who um well who had a speech that was leaked to it was a party speech and it was leaked to the public mm. where he he basically acknowledged that he had been lying to to the hungarian voters about the economy and then a couple of years after that the financial crisis hit and and disappointed even more people so that's very important to understand why Orban was um, why he came into power.
0: I just should should interrupt a second in that you you interview that politician uh, Joshani at the at the end of the book and you you ask him this quite pointed question as to you know you basically say why are you still on the political stage Um, is is that how you feel is it amazing that he's after after that speech? He's still running for office.
1: It is kind of amazing because I think in <laughs> many other countries, uh, politician with such a big scandal and such a big hatred towards him in, in mm. broader society would would step down and 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 leave politics. But as he explains it, uh, you know, there is a big voter base uh, still voting for him. So if he would. If he would, uh, if he would go away, they would also go away. Mm-hmm. That's his, uh, that's his uh, reason. <laughs> but so on the on the similarities with, say Brexit mm-hmm. and Trump, um, I've also sensed, uh, and I've traveled around in in both Britain and, and the states a kind of disappointment with how things were developing in in this liberal uh, fast lane society where not everyone mm-hmm. was benefiting from how things were going and then into the stage comes a person or a movement who speaks to them in a in a in a manner that they understand um so, this goes for Trump, uh, Farage, Orban, mm-hmm. other leaders. Um, and the easy response to that would be to say, well, this is just populism. And I write in the book that I have a problem with this term because I yeah. think it's it's kind of a... It's become a word that you you use towards people you don't like and you don't want to hear their opinions even. so instead of taking that approach, I wanted to talk to the people who who have these um, feelings and and opinions and try to understand what what caused it and that's why I go so deep in into conversation with, yeah. with some of the urban voters and I, I hope that this uh, these conversations if you read them you'll you understand what's going on in the, in the minds of Trump voters, Brexit voters, and and other other Europeans and Americans who are disappointed with the way society has developed under globalisation. And yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, well, you have this very good uh, quote. I think you got it directly from uh, Rod Dreher, where he says. Um, had Trump only half of Orban's intelligence and drive, America would be somewhere else today. And, and it really struck me. Um, you again. You, you you talk about how how politically disciplined he and his movement are. That he he's very much he, he picks a fight and he makes it very very focused. So at the beginning, it was it was. Um, over utility prices when he first ran, then it became over migration. And now he's very much focused on this, what he calls aggressive LGBTQ propaganda at the school gates. And it's it's very, you know, that's what the governor of Florida is now attempting. There really is a lot of, um, there is a lot that national conservatives could learn from Orbán's sort of political Mm -hmm. discipline. And, and, And sorry, just one other thought, which is the, you, you also talk about something that's quite specific to him, but one that, that Tucker Carlson is trying to tap into, which is this idea that Hungarians should feel no um, guilt about the colonial past because they didn't have any colonies. And that that's sort of something that, that uh, in a different way, it's part of the American National Conservative right to trying to tap into. This is this may be something that happened in the past, but it's nothing to do with us anymore. C- could you expand on that a little more?
1: Yeah, this is also something that uh, that Maria Smith who I interview, who is a mm, political yeah. advisor and historian in Hungary, um, says this thing about, well, we don't owe these people anything. Uh, and these people, she means people in, in Africa and in the Middle East. Mm. We don't owe these people anything because we've never had a colony Uh, so this is a a thought that i hadn't experienced in western europe and in the western part of the world um but going back to the first part of your questions i i I, i've noticed this uh it it is very focused the the urban communication yeah, but it's also, um, and I think that's why so many people are attracted to it, even from from you know intellectual parts of society, um, that it has this try. It's like a new way of, of making conservatism great again. Um, yeah, and you could you could have different opinions on that, of course, but um, by inviting people like um, you know people like Jordan Peterson, people like um, John O'Sullivan, the former Thatcher speechwriter and and journalist, mm-hmm. to Hungary and and meet with Orbán and Orbán, as he likes to mention, often he he spends most Thursdays in his reading uh, office, just reading books and try to to get a intellectual understanding of the world. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that I was also, you know, open to hear more about. Instead of just saying, "Yeah, this is just some some propaganda way of of, of saying, uh, well, of, of reasoning his politics," but um, I find I found this um, was appealing to a lot of people, and including, like you said, Rod Dreher, who's a Christian, national conservative American writer and the editor of the American conservative who spent a lot of time here. He's, he's here now again, I think in ahead of the elections. And he, mm-hmm. he's been coining uh, Hungary as the Texas of Europe. So I think if this, uh, <laughs> if this kind of
0: sums it up, that's, that's how it is. For, for, it feels yeah. a bit more like Florida at the moment. Yeah, true. <laughs> Actually, I, on that, I, um, this this was a revelation to me. I didn't know about... Well, first of all, as you said, that, that, that it, Hungary has proved to be this sort of magnet for, for national conservative thinkers. Um, but I didn't realise that there's this area near Lake Balaton that's attracting fairly average conservative Germans. Because as you say, you quote someone saying... You feel like you were in Germany thirty years ago, and even a couple it, it, it even got out of hand for the government with a couple of uh, fascists or neo Nazis like Horst Mahler mm-hmm. trying to turn up there. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you think happened there? Was there, did they did they feel it was attracting the wrong kind of national conservative, or that there was a limit to the people they could take in?
1: Yeah, so. Um with people like, like Marla and also, uh, Nick Griffin who, who came here oh, yes. and got, yeah. uh, I think he got kicked out or maybe he left on his own. Um, I, I think it got a little bit out of hand for, for the government to, to, to be so, um, open-minded to, to right-wing ideas. Um, and important in understanding of, of, of Fides of Orban, is that um, for a long time, at least until three or four years ago, they were not the right-wing party of Hungary because, well, they were right-wing party, but there was another far-right party uh, called Jobbik and Hungary had to navigate, uh, well, Orban had to navigate trying to, um, well, in a political way, try to take uh, Hungary kind of through this right wing, left wing um, polls. So, I mean, what happened after the 2015 migration crisis was that Jopik was growing in, in the polls and, and Fidesz had a little bit of a crisis. So, what Orban did was basically to take over the rhetoric of Jopik, including uh, the idea of building a fence on the Southern border, which he did. And that kind of locked uh, Jopik out um, mm. because they are an opposition party. And they had to remodel basically and, and turn into this kind of moderate consa- conservative people's party, which they are now. Um, mm. So, so, there's been a lot of change in, in Hungarian view on, on right-wing politics just in the past six, seven years. Um, so it's not set in stone. And this is also what I've learned from from spending time with people around Viktor Orban, is that Orban is not this idealist. Or- ideologist you know of course in, in his speeches he tries to be but in practice he's very pragmatic and he's very you know he, he sees where where there are openings and and it's very strategi- strategic so yeah. this is something that's important to to know about him
0: Well on that school as I say he, he's, he's very much the current focus is this LGBT issue and there's a there's a, a, a referendum on the same day as the election to try and, I guess, to try and motivate his his, his base vote. Hmm. But at the same time, you you mentioned that the Hungarians, I mean, may, maybe not for voters, but Hungarians generally are actually quite liberal on these issues. Do, do you think there's a could could he could he possibly be misplaying this one? Do you think? Um,
1: you're right. There. A growing uh, part of the Hungarian society uh, is um, supporting gay marriage and, and you know, different, different views on that topic. So I think the reason for, for bringing the LGBTQ issue into the election campaign was originally to, like you say, stir up the core, core base of his voters um, yeah. and mobilize them. Uh, but also I mentioned this party Yopik before a lot of these voters and and they they um belong to the opposition bloc, but yeah. they are very conservative uh, and many of them are anti-lgbtq um so I think one of the one of the um, reasons from Orban was also to try to to split the opposition bloc on this issue. Um, but now that the war broke out, the, mm. well, the referendum is still going, taking place on the election day, but it's not had this big uh, focus as as Orban probably hoped for.
0: And actually, on on, on the invasion, uh, is there any daylight between Jobbik and the... And the the rest of the opposition on on Ukraine, or are they are they in lockstep?
1: No, they are very much uh, on the same page as the oppo- rest of the opposition. I would say on this issue. Um, basically, the opposition right now is not communicating anything else than unity. Um, they know this from experience that if they start, uh, dive, you know, having diverse opinions on. On topics and Orban can play them out and so far they're just communicating the same lines all from the left wing to Yopic. Um mm. so I think they're very careful not to to say out loud what they really mean until after the election mm. and this also of course is a reason for Orban's voters to say well this opposition is just you can't have a opposition consisting of a right-wing party and left-wing and green yeah. so that's that's their arguments.
0: Actually what, what's your what's your take there that if if the opposition were to win uh, on Sunday <clears throat> are they so desperate that they could survive a full term do you think or, or would it be are there fissures there ready to ready to crack once they're in office?
1: Yeah, I think it'll be very difficult. Um, obviously, first there would be a lot of work to do for them to to try to take the Hungarian state back to where they want it to be, um, taking taking some of the Orban developments back. Um, but then, when when because that's where they agree that they. they only thing they all agree on is that Orbán should leave. Um, mm. And after that, if that's done, I mean, that could take some time, but then I think it would be hard to to make politics that represent center-right-wing, moderate conservatives and climate parties and, yeah. and left-wing. So, but of course, we've seen it in other countries that governments are able to navigate around such different issues um, but it definitely comes with some challenge
0: yeah yeah Uh, well to close the interview as usual I've asked my guests to recommend two books to listeners uh, one broadly in their field and one personal choice so uh, Lassie what did you go for
1: so uh, well in the field I I chose Ivan Krastev's After Europe Mm-hmm. which came out in 2017 as I was writing my own book. And I quote his book uh, a bit in my own uh, because I thought it was just, it was so sharp, his analysis of of understanding the Eastern Europeans, uh, why they are, have a different approach on this, of course. At the time, there was bigger... Uh, unity between Hungary and Poland and and other Central and Eastern European countries. Um, I think he says that the difference between the East and the West is that the East Eastern Europeans have seen the world collapse from inside where Westerners just observed from the outside and Mm -hmm. I think that explains a lot uh, when you want to understand a country like Hungary. The other book I chose, and uh, this was my personal choice, was Adam Grant' book book called Think Again. Um, his subtitle in, on that book is "The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know." And in his book, he goes through different, uh, different, how can you say, um, ways of trying to think again and change your perspective on things, and this is, of course, something I did a lot of in, in Orbanland and in my time mm-hmm. in, in Hungary, to try to not always um, go with your first idea, but try to acknowledge that sometimes you can you can have doubt, or you can need more time to think. Um, he gives great examples in that book, and I can only recommend it uh, on, on how to how to navigate in a in a confused and complicated world and trying to not always take the easy way out but try to try to understand the world better and it's a very good, good right.
0: book right well interesting choices um today i've been talking to lassie skurts author of urbanland published in march by new europe books lassie thanks again for coming on thank you very much appreciate it